Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Today on Words of Grace, I want to consider with you one of my favorite subjects to talk about, the new birth, being born from above. This is one of the most fundamental subjects in the Bible, as it is literally the event in our personal lives wherein we come to know the Lord, when we pass from death in sin to life in Christ. It's something that will happen to each and every single person elected by God the Father before the foundation of the world, and it is something that is permanent, or should I say, makes a permanent change in an individual. Now, before we dig into this subject, I'm going to say up front that while the Bible describes the new birth in many places and with many plain metaphors, there is still some mystery about it. Now, what I mean by that will become more clear as we begin studying through some of the material that we want to consider today. For instance, at the new birth, the laws of God are written on our hearts. Now, if you were to take out a person's physical beating organ that we call the heart, are the laws literally inscribed in the muscle mass there? No, certainly not. That's not what that metaphor means. That would be to take it too literally. This is a metaphor, if you will. And our hearts at the new birth have been circumcised, as we will see today from Romans chapter 2. Is that a literal thing that happens to our hearts? Is something from the physical organ taken away? No, that's obviously not what Paul is communicating to us. We are called new creatures, new acts of creation after the new birth. We are new creatures, and yet we look the same. Our eyes and skin and hair and nails are as before. But in some sense, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The new birth affects the heart of a person. Again, not the organ, but the seat of human emotion, the heart being the core of our emotional and spiritual being. But let me ask you a question. Where is the heart? Again, we know where the beating organ is in our chest, but as far as what the Bible often calls the heart— upon which the laws of God are written, the Lord takes up residence in our hearts. Where is that? Where is that located? How can you find it? Can you point to it on a diagram? And the answer to that is no. We even find difficulty explaining for you what the heart is and giving it a definition. Do you remember that passage from Hebrews where it says that only the great high priest knows how to divide asunder from the soul and the spirit, to divide between, distinguish between the soul and spirit? Now, there are many preachers that attempt to do that, but just being honest with you, they can't, and neither can I. Only the Lord can make that distinction. Only the Lord can draw that distinction between the soul and the spirit. And I think defining the heart and locating the heart, that's one of those things that only the Lord knows. We can talk about it. We know that it exists. We experience life with it each and every day. You know, in your heart, some things. You love someone in your heart. The Lord has written his laws upon your heart. You have it. You're very much affected by it. 
But how to articulately define all that that means, we simply can't. We don't know. So as we explore this concept, I want you to know up front that some of what we will talk about today, though we can understand a lot about it, still contains some degree of mystery, some wonder, and some marvel to us as God's people. The first thing that I want to do is to define, number one, what exactly happens at the new birth, and then number two, read a few passages giving the various terms, metaphors, if you will, that the Scriptures use to refer to this act. And then before we come to the close of today's broadcast, I want to explore this concept a little bit more of things that are given to us and things that are taken away from us in the new birth. And I think that will be a topic of interest to you as you listen. So first of all, what exactly happens at the new birth? At the new birth, people, sinners, are vitally saved. Now, I say vitally. I use that word very much on purpose. I use that word intentionally because God the Father purposed to save us before time began. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we read, According as he, God the Father, has chosen us in him, God the Son, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, God the Father, in love. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world in his Son. He chose us and he purposed to save us. And that is very much a phase of our eternal salvation, but that is not the vital phase of our salvation. The word vital, to give you a little hint up front, refers to our life, vitality. And so that tells us that when we talk about the vital phase of salvation, that's the communication to us of eternal salvation, and it's something that affects us personally in our own individual lives. The covenant phase of salvation was before the foundation of the world. Paul remarks about this in the book of Titus chapter 1 when he says that God who cannot lie promised eternal life to us before the world began. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, we read that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So this promising of life and purposing to save, this all refers to the choosing of a people by God the Father in God the Son, in Christ Jesus, before the world began, and that is the covenant phase of salvation. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, legally saved us from our sins upon the cross of Calvary when he died for us, taking away our sins. What did the angel say in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21? Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When the Lord was upon the cross of Calvary and he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. That's a single word in the Greek language. He cries out that single word that translates it is finished for us in our English Bibles. He gave up the ghost and he completed salvation for his people. He that knew no sin, as Second Corinthians 5 says, was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the legal phase of salvation. But the new birth, 
something that is often attributed to the Holy Spirit, though as we will see today, sometimes it's attributed to the voice of the Son of God, and sometimes it's attributed to the drawing of the Father, because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, though they are three, they are united There is complete harmony and purpose in the Godhead so that we cannot compartmentalize off the three persons of the Godhead, though they are three persons of the Godhead. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. But these three are one, and so there is a bleeding over and an overlapping between their various distinct roles in salvation. Remember, the Father chose in the Son, and so you have the Father and the Son connected there in that choosing. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and as the Spirit enters our heart, it is referred to in Galatians 4 as the Spirit of God entering our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. So there is great harmony in the Godhead in salvation. But we generally understand and break these down as the covenant phase of the Father, the legal phase of the Son, and then the vital phase of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, which is the new birth. This is attributed to the Holy Spirit. And this is when we are personally, individually, vitally saved. Before the new birth, we were dead in trespasses and in sins. After the new birth, We are alive in Christ Jesus. And the salvation that Christ has wrought for us at the cross has now been personally applied in our own individual lives. This is when you and I personally take possession of the salvation that Christ has wrought for us. Lastly, regarding what the new birth is in brief, as we will see today, this is a God-only thing. Or to put it in a more theological way, this is monergistic rather than being synergistic. We don't help God accomplish the new birth, either in our own hearts or the hearts of other people. We have no power to impact this. There's nothing we can do to impact the new birth. We can't bring it to pass. And being dead in trespasses and in sins, if we had to want the new birth for it to happen— we'd be in a rather hopeless situation because none seek after God in their natural state. As we read in Romans chapter 3, there is none that seeketh after God. That devastating passage says that there's none good, no, not one. There's none that fears God. There's none that seeks after God. Our throats are open sepulchers. We are wicked individuals depraved before the Spirit of God quickens us, before the new birth. And so if we had to choose to want this for it to be, we would be in a hopeless situation because none seek after God in their natural state. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says the gospel is to those that perish foolishness, and 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says the natural man, a person in his natural state, receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him. So the Word of God is very clear that we are so depraved in our natural state We would not seek for this to happen if this only happened when we sought it. Decisional regeneration is the popular notion in today's time, and it is not biblical. Regeneration is quite literally the resurrection of a corpse, in a spiritual sense, in the Word of God. Corpses have no power to choose to raise themselves again, lest no one would ever die. And if they did, they wouldn't stay dead. 
But the Word of God uses those metaphors, those word pictures, to communicate this glorious truth to us that when we were yet enemies, the Lord has given us His salvation. Great examples of this would be the dying thief upon the cross who reviled Christ one moment and the next moment is praising Him and begging Him. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus was an unregenerate, reprobate, godless persecutor who thought he was doing God's service by killing Christians, and he did it because he didn't know God. And Christ struck him down on the road to Damascus. And there was no one there involved with that except for the Lord Jesus. Paul is an unregenerate. Jesus strikes him down, and Paul is a changed man. That was all of Christ. It was monergistic. It was not synergistic. The last example perhaps I could share with you is that of John the Baptist. He was sanctified, born of the Spirit of God in his mother's womb. Certainly he was not asking to be born again. He didn't yet even know a language, and yet the Holy Spirit sanctified him from his mother's womb so that by faith he leapt for joy at the salutation of the mother of our Lord as she entered into the room while John was yet in the womb. That is a God-only regeneration. And that's how it works for every single one of us. Every single person that is born again is born again the same way, in a monergistic way, God raising the dead from death and trespasses and in sins. And I would also add that just regarding the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in salvation, that there's a final phase of our salvation coming at the resurrection from the dead when we are glorified. So you have the covenant phase, you have the legal phase, You have the vital phase, and then you have the final phase of salvation. I can't mention that without indulging myself to read for you Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the covenant phase. You are predestinated unto the final phase, being conformed to the image of the Son. But listen to these links in what people call the golden chain of salvation. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, that's the covenant phase. Then he also called, that is the vital phase. And whom he called, then he also justified, that is the legal phase of salvation. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. That is the final phase. That will happen at the resurrection of the dead when we are raised in glorified bodies and carried away to be with the Lord forevermore. And again, some preachers refer to that beloved passage as the golden chain of salvation. You have those chain links in the chain of salvation connected on one end to the purpose of God before the foundation of the world and on the other end, glory itself as we are there with him conformed to the image of his Son. So the next thing that I want to talk about, I said I wanted to, number one, define for you exactly what happens at the new birth, and then number two, read a few passages giving the various terms, metaphors, that the Scriptures use to refer to this act. So you've heard what it is, summarized. Now let's look at passages that give us some word pictures to better help us understand this concept that we know as the new birth. Well, first of all, I have said several times today on the broadcast that we are born again. We have experienced the new birth. This language of born again comes from the book of John chapter 3. As you know, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, 
And he tells him that he knows that he's a teacher come from God because of the things that he does. Nicodemus is a closet believer who comes by nightfall. He's still not publicly confessing Christ. He would later. But at this point in his life, he's coming by nightfall with his curiosities and his belief in Jesus. When he says that, I know you're a teacher come from God, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't say, as it's so often misquoted today, unless you get born again, you can't go to the kingdom of God. What Jesus says is, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus sees something, and Jesus is telling him why. You see something because you are born of the Spirit of God. Remember, this is a closet believer. Nicodemus is confused, and he says, Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. I believe the water birth there, born of water, is quite literally just our physical existence. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you could be born of water, born of your mother, hundreds of times. It's still only a fleshly birth. And all you're going to get from being born of a human being is the nature of a human being, which is the nature of Adam. This is a birth from another source. That is to say, we are born of God in the new birth. We are born from above, which is why Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We're talking about a birth from another source. Now, Jesus says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus just gave us a rule with no exception. Everyone who is born again is born again the same way. Well, what way is that? How is that accomplished? What is this new birth of which Jesus is speaking? It is accomplished just as the wind blows. How does the wind blow? Well, you hear the sound thereof, but you don't know where it came from and where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Jesus just told Nicodemus that the new birth is by the sovereign command of Almighty God. And while we experience it in our lives, we do not govern it either on ourselves or others, but it is out of our control just as much as the wind is out of our control. And then he says that this happens to everyone that is born of the Spirit. That doesn't mean everyone's born again, but everyone that is born again, God's sovereign will has caused it to be. Just as much as God only controls the wind, God only controls the new birth. And so to use a theological term, God is sovereign in salvation, just as much as God is sovereign in his control over the weather. So John 3, 8, we are born with a birth in addition to water birth. Christ uses spirit and water to represent the spirit and the flesh. This is a birth. We are born from above. And as such, what are we called? Well, we're called children of God because we have been born of him. We are the sons of God. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Ephesians 2.1, here's another word for it. We are quickened. 
And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, there might be a critic out there who uses a more modern Bible translation than I use, who will say, well, it doesn't say hath he quickened in my translation in Ephesians 2, 1. No, but it says it in verse 5. The words hath he quickened do not occur in verse 1 in the Greek from which the New Testament is translated into English, but because of the way the Greek language works, that point is down in verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, ye are saved. That's what's being discussed, and so the translators place that up in verse 1 in italics to let you know it's not there in the original language at that point in the passage, but it's necessary to complete the actual thought. And so we refer to these as words that are supplied by the translators. It's not a mistranslation. It's not an addition. It belongs there. And when a person would read this in Greek, they would totally understand what's being said. You were quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins, but the quickening is down in verse 5. Now, quickened means to be made alive or brought to life. Notice how back in chapter 1, in which Paul introduces the concept, now please understand, he didn't come to chapter 2 and verse 1 and suddenly begin talking about the new birth. The new birth has been under discussion for several statements in Ephesians prior to chapter 2. These chapter divisions are not there in the original epistles. Paul has been discussing the new birth. Notice what he says about it in verse 19 of chapter 1. What is this exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places? God has quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, and this quickening is by the same power wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And this quickening, I would also add, is why we believe. We believe according to the working of his mighty power. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised our dead souls from death and sin to life in Christ, enabling our belief. We believe according to God's resurrecting power. And what word does Paul use here? He uses the word quickened. Colossians 1.13 uses another word. We are translated. God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. We have been translated from darkness into light. In Titus 3.5, we read that we are saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is a very similar word to quicken. God has regenerated us, as it were. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, we read that we have been drawn by the Father. God literally draws us to himself in life from death and sin to life in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, as well as many other passages, we read that we are saved and so another word for regeneration is save. Sometimes the word save refers to the vital phase of salvation, obviously. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, those that are predestinated are called this word calling describes the new birth as God calls us by his spirit from death and sin to life in Christ. And then lastly, we are created. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, created unto good works. 
Now, I've heard some twist that to say that we have a new creature at the new birth. While we do have a new nature, we are new creatures. There's a huge difference in saying, I am a dog, and I have a dog. At the new birth, we don't merely have a new creature, but we are new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Now, as to being created unto good works, that simply means that at regeneration, we are equipped, enabled, called, and expected to do things that glorify God. You're saved to be salt and light. So, wow, we are born, quickened, translated, regenerated, drawn, called, saved, and created. All that, all those terms, communicating this singular experience of the new birth. Now, for the remainder of time that I have today, I want to emphasize some truth regarding this, but first a caveat. Contrary to what Lordship Salvation adherents teach, we are not super saints who automatically grow in holiness to be more and more sanctified in a practical sense the longer we live, lest we be false professors. There were carnal Christians in the Bible, and there are carnal Christians today. And Paul didn't call them unregenerates. He called them immature babes in Christ. He spoke unto the Corinthians as unto babes because they were yet carnal. The extreme version of perseverance that we know as lordship salvation is a form of cruel bondage that leads to either pride or despair. At the same time, the new birth is the most radical change that we experience between conception and death based upon all those terms that describe it that we shared with you, and it makes a real moral and ethical difference in a person's life. After the new birth, there is a conscience that laments our own personal sins, and after the new birth, we possess the fruit of the Spirit as personality traits. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 speak of a nature. We don't merely have the capacity for those traits with the right stimuli bringing them to the surface, though certainly we're not always walking in them either, which is the point in Paul's remarks there. But we have those traits because we have that nature. A nature is a strong thing. We have two of them after regeneration, the flesh and the spirit. What's sad, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So when we walk after the flesh, and we do, we have no excuse. Shame on us when we do so. So here's what I want to explore with you in closing. I want you to think of things added, things taken away, and things changed. That's going to make way more sense in a moment, but remember... There is great mystery in this as well, things we can't fully explain, and that's okay. Number one, something is changed in the new birth because it's a washing. And I'd add, a washing, that is a change that tends toward the cleaner. That's what you do when you wash something. There's been a cleaning that happened in the new birth, according to Titus 3. Number two, something is added because the laws of God are written on the heart and the mind, and because the Spirit of God is enters our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So something is added. The law of God upon the heart and the Spirit crying, Abba, Father. Number three, something is taken away because in Romans 2, this is called a circumcision. And I skipped this metaphor in our list of new birth descriptions earlier, but Romans 2 describes the new birth as an act of circumcision. And Old Testament circumcision existed, number one, to describe the removal of the filth of the flesh, and, number two, as a symbol of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with his seed. So, the new birth is a removal, in some way, of the filth of the flesh, 
and the new birth, being a circumcision, is a sign of the covenant that God made before the foundation of the world. And then lastly, number four, something is created because the new birth is an act of creation as we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. I hope you have enjoyed this survey of the miracle that is the new birth. I know this is more than enough information conveyed to you to light a fire of interest and study in your life, and perhaps you learn some things that you might not have known before. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.